right. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 2. We're going to do the whole chapter this morning. Yeah, yeah, but don't you worry. Don't you worry. Um, so Deuteronomy chapter 2, and uh, as we're turning there, if you have a Bible, I mean, if you need a Bible, there's some of the chairs there. You're going to go to page 114, page 114 there to get you to where we're going to be. Um, so we're, we're, you're going to see more and more as we get into it. There's going to be large sections. And so just a reminder, if you haven't been here, um, what I'm doing with large sections is I'm not going to be covering every verse. A lot of this is narrative. And so there's going to be a lot of summarizing. And then, hey, let's hit this point here. This is a good summary here. Or, hey, here's the turning point here. Right? But this is where that reading plan is really helpful. So if you haven't been doing the reading plan, it's not too late to start. You see how quickly we're going through Deuteronomy. Not very, right? I mean, so, so you have time to catch up. So there's reading plans out here on the Corinthians out there, or you can go to our Facebook page. We have a, a picture of it. You can do that as well. But what it would get you doing is it tells you what, what verses we're expected to cover that week for the sermon. Track A will help you just get through the book of Deuteronomy so you get familiar with it. And then track B is helping you correspond the verses that we're looking at at the sermon that day. Where else might they show up in the scriptures? Either they're looking back at something or they're looking forward or the New Testament quotes them. And so that'll kind of help you uh, dig a little deeper in there. So this morning, we're going to talk about um, obedience. In fact, here's, here's what we're going to talk about. Obedience is how the people of God live in relationship with God. But when I throw on a word like obedience, it can have mixed, mixed feelings attached to it. So let me just ask you for a moment. Parents, and this is participatory, I do want you to respond. Um, parents, do you expect your kids to obey you? Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. And if your kids disobey you, is there some kind of consequence or should there be? Yeah, yeah, okay, good. All right, um, teachers in the room, how many teachers, teachers in the room, whether you're public school, private school, or homeschool? All right. Um, do you expect your pupils, your students to obey you? Yes. Okay. I got, that wasn't, yeah, I got, saw some head shakes, but okay. And if they don't, are there consequences for that disobedience? Right. Okay. Um, let's see. We, we could keep going up different, different levels, right? But, but you're going to get the point, right? There, there are, there are certain levels of authority. There are certain structures of authority where there's an expectation of obedience, now, there's different ways that we can obey, right? There's different motives. There are different reasons why I might obey. In fact, like, for instance, if I'm going back to the parent-child, um, if I obeyed as a child, more often than not, my obedience was about just not getting in trouble. I just didn't want the consequences. I didn't, I didn't so much care that my parents were an authority over me. I challenged that authority often, right? But then I faced the consequences for that often. So I'm just saying that for my kids in the room because they just heard me say I challenged my parents' authority, but I got the consequences for that often, okay? Um, but, but I was obeying just simply because I didn't want the consequences. Or um, I, was, I was a really good kid in public, I knew how to obey in public, not because I didn't want to embarrass my parents. I didn't care about that. It's because I didn't want to embarrass me. I was concerned about my image in public. And so I obeyed in public, but not so much in private. I was a different person at home than I was in public. Anybody's kids different in public than they are at home? Yeah. So on the one hand, I say, thank you, Lord, that they at least don't embarrass us in public. But then on the other hand, I'm going, Lord, I'd like a little bit more of a balance here, right? Can they, they, can they obey a little more at home like they do in public, right? But obedience is an expectation. Now, you can obey out of just not wanting to get in trouble. You can obey because you want to look good to other people. Or there's another level of obedience. 
It's a higher level of obedience. And it's, I obey because I love you. You're my mom. You're my dad. God has given you authority over me. I obey you because I love you. I'm responding to your love for me. I, I trust you, therefore I obey you, right? Um, or in a, in a teacher uh, setting, uh, I obey you out of respect. Maybe we wouldn't necessarily say love. That might be a little weird depending on your setting, right? But maybe we, we obey because I'm showing you respect. I'm showing you honor by obeying as opposed to I just don't want to get marked down for the day. That's two different levels of obedience. And we need to keep that in mind because uh, as we talked this morning, obedience is how the people of God live in relationship with God. One of the things that, that I'm gonna be driving home is the type of obedience that we're talking about is a response to God's love for us, not, not an, an action where we're trying to earn God's love. We're, we're not trying to impress God and look good to God so that he might pick us for his team or that he might be extra kind to us or show us extra favor. That's, that's not the kind of obedience that God calls for. That's the kind of obedience that's good on the outside but corrupt on the inside. But as people of God, those who are under the covenant of God, who are in Christ, we're called to obey and that's how, it, how we live in relationship with God. But that obedience is not um, dry that obedience is not wooden or sterile. That obedience is supposed to be fueled by love. And when the spirit of God is at work within us, it is. So this morning, we're gonna see how the people of God live in uh, obedience to him and how that plays out in the context of their relationship. So chapter two is where we're gonna be. So the obedience... Uh, Obedience to God is how the people of God live in relationship with him, right? So that's the big picture. Let's see how that plays out. We kind of need to have an understanding of, well, what might it look like to live in obedience? If obedience to God is how the people of God live in relationship to God, well, what might that obedience look like? So let's take a look. Let's look at these first two verses here. Chapter two, verse one and two. So then we turned... And journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount, Mount Sire. Then the Lord said to me, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna pause just for a moment. I want to give you a little bit of background before we look at what the Lord said to him. So you remember last week as we wrapped up chapter 1, uh, what Moses is doing, this is the first sermon of Moses in Deuteronomy, first out of seven, right? This sermon will go all the way to the end of chapter 4. And what he's doing in this sermon as he stands just on the outside of going into the promised land, he's standing before a new generation of adults, a, a new generation of, uh, of Israelites who are now going to go in and possess the land that God has given them. But he's reminding them about some of the things that happened as they got here, some of the things that happened along the way, because after all, it took them 40 years to get to this spot. And they were only really 11 days away the whole time. Right? And so what happened was there was some disobedience in their, the previous generation. So the, the people that Moses is standing before saying these things to, uh, it was their parents and grandparents who were disobedient uh, some 38, 40 years uh, ago when God had told them the first time to go and take the land. Right? And so he's now, he had, he had just told them at the end of chapter one, we saw God tell the people, so turn back around and start going through the wilderness. That's where chapter one ended. That's where Moses finished up that part of his sermon was the people of God were then turned back away from the promised land where they were then going to wander in the wilderness. And now he's picking it back up with chapter two. And, and, and he's talking now 38 some years or, or so years later where God now tells the people, now turn your direction. 
right? So he says in in verse two, the Lord said to me, verse three now, you have been traveling around this mountain country long enough, turn northward. Okay, so I'm gonna pull up a map here. It's a little small, but you're gonna get the point regardless. So this is a map of Israel. So just off here to the, to the west would be the Mediterranean Sea and Egypt down here. This body of water that you see at the bottom, that's the Dead Sea. This little body of water at the top, that's the Sea of Galilee. And in between there is the Jordan River. Okay, so we've, we've got the people of Israel who have been around the mountain region, down here in the bottom left corner of that map. That's where they've been kind of hovering around. That's where uh, Kadesh Barnea was down here. That's where they were at the border the first time. And they were told to go and take possession, but then they, the spies came back, remember, and they saw giants in the land. The people were dismayed and they didn't go. So God turned them back toward the, the Red Sea. And so for the last 38 or so years, they've just been going in this circle and they've been hanging around in this mountainous region here. But now, as they're approaching the, the, the time of the, that generation dying out, God's now telling them, now I want you to start turning north. And so what we're going to see in these verses is 38 years are going to be covered in one chapter. And really in, in just like two paragraphs. You're going to see them track down here toward, uh, through the land of Edom, which is the, the land of Esau, right? So they're going to come through here. Then you're going to see them track through the land of Moab. Then you're going to see them keep coming north, and they're going to track into the land of Ammon. And then right here is where we're going to finish off, which is a town uh, in an area called Heshbon, Right? And Jericho's right here. So just for perspective and context, later in Joshua, when they finally cross into the land, this is where they go across, right there, just above the Dead Sea where Jericho is. So all of the stuff we're looking at today is them tracking through this area and coming up to this spot here. But the question we're asking is, what does obedience look like? If obedience to God is the way that the people of God live in relationship with God, what does it look like? And here we, we've got these people who had been wandering now for some 38 years, but now the word of the Lord comes to Moses. And it says, you've been traveling around this mountain country long enough, turn northward, change your directions. And so I think the first thing we see here is that obedience follows God's direction. You see, this whole time, uh, and, and, and we've had some 38 years that they've been wandering. A lot has happened in that time. You can read about it in the book of Numbers. Moses is just summing it all up in about a paragraph. They've been following along, and wherever the, the, the glory of God goes, that's where they go. So if the, the pillar of cloud by day or the, the pillar of fire by night, if it settles, the people settle. And they might settle for a few days, they might settle for a few weeks or months or even maybe a year or so, and then the, the glory cloud of God would pick up And the people would pack up and the glory cloud of God would start moving and the people would start moving. And they're following him wherever he goes. Now he's telling them, change your direction. Part of obeying God as the people of God is to follow God's direction. Where is God leading? How how is he leading us? Where is he asking us to go? So following God's direction, following God is how we live in obedience to God. But what might that look like for us? How do we know God's direction? Well, If you don't know God, you won't know his voice. And one of the primary ways that you know God's voice is through the word that we have preserved here, right? This is is something where uh, we've got 66 books preserved for us where God himself is speaking through human authors. So we've got the word of God. It carries the authority of God and it gives us much of what we need for our life. It gives us everything that we need to know God and to know how to be in relationship with God and how to live in relationship with God. 
And then it gives us his character so we learn who he is, what he's like, so that when, when we're following him, we're able to run it through a grid of the scriptures where we go, is, does this line up with God? Like when I'm praying about like di- divination and stuff like that, well, how do I know that that's not good? Because a lot of people find answers through divination that maybe they're looking for. Yet the word of God says that's, that's idolatry, that's, that's sorcery, that's witchcraft, right? So that's how we know that kind of thing. So, so primarily you go here, right? You can't not know the word of God and, 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 and expect to know God in all that he wants us to know. But, but this is not the only way that God speaks to us. So hear me out for a moment. Because what I'm about to tell you next is not on the same level of this, of the scripture, but every one of you will be able to recognize that God speaks beyond this word. So when you start praying for specific life direction, like who am I supposed to marry? You can go to the scripture and find some biblical principles about what kind of girl or or guy you're supposed to marry and you should be looking for. But when you're asking God, is this the one or is this one? I mean, I've got five of them in my life. How do I know which one, right? How, how you can, you're not going to be able to find that in the scriptures where they're going to say, see this person, the girl that's named this right here, that's one, right? Now, what God might do, though, is he might steer you, he might guide you, he might open your eyes to see some things you haven't seen in the character of some of these, these guys or girls, right? He, he, he might then give you a, a sense of uh, overwhelming joy about one of them over the other. He might give you a sense of peace about one of them over the other, right? You're not going to find that explicitly in the scripture. So you're going to the Lord and you're asking him to guide you. You're asking the spirit of God to guide you. Well, that's highly subjective, Right? But that's one of the ways that God leads us by his spirit. And that's, that's good and that's right. But how do we know that the Lord's leading me? How do I know I'm, I'm not looking to someone that's just going to satisfy my list and my list? How do I know my list is lines up with God's list? Well, that's where I go back to. You got to be, be understanding who God is as he's revealed himself, right? That, that's one example. What about where I go to school? Or do I take this job? Do I take this promotion, right? I mean, there's certainly going to be some biblical principles that we can come to to help guide us. But at the end of the day, there, there might be good, good decisions either way. You can go to one school or the other. I know that that would, that would not be the case here because some of you would say you should never go to OU, while others of you would say you should never go to OSU. And then some of you don't even care about that because you're going to say, go be an Aggie, Texas A&M, right? I mean, it's just, it just depends on how you view that. But overall, you know, God's going to guide you to the school he wants you, but you're going to be asking him, hey, show me something, show me something, right? How do I know where I'm supposed to go, right? That's going to be highly subjective, and he might lead you in different ways. He might, for instance, he might give you a scholarship, a full ride to one, and you go, clearly, that's the Lord's leading, right? Maybe, maybe not, right? So there's different ways that the Lord leads us, but in order for us to know who God is, we've got, to, we've got to know this. I mean, so we live in a day and time where we have an abundance, an embarrassing amount of abundance of wealth, of, of scripture and resources to help us understand this. So we certainly need to give our time to this because th- this is where I'm gonna learn how God has acted in history, how he's revealed himself already in history, what his character's like, and I'm gonna be able to run that through the grid of scripture. But then when I'm asking the Lord to guide me in specific situations or if, if I'm asking the Lord, how do I pray for this person? How do, how do I encourage this person? Right? He might give me something that's specific to that person that I'm not gonna necessarily find a, a verse in here that's gonna say, see, that's where I get it from, but I can go, is that from the Lord? Because does it match the character of God? Does, does it speak to them in a way that points them toward the Lord? But how am I gonna know the Lord's direction if I don't know his voice? 
All throughout the scripture, it talks about God's voice, and we're not necessarily talking about an audible voice. We're talking about how God speaks to his people, how he communicates with his people, right? For the people of God here in in Israel, there was a pillar uh, uh, by fire uh, by night and a cloud by day, and so he had told them, if you see the cloud move, you move. That's how I'm gonna lead you and guide you, right? He spoke to Moses face to face, right? He called Abraham a friend, Right? And so there's different ways that God's going to reveal himself. There's, there's other ways that we'll see throughout the book of Deuteronomy that God helps us to understand this is how God might work in this case and this case. But in order for the people of God to obey God in the context of a relationship, we've got to follow his direction. And if I'm going to follow his direction, I've got to know his voice. If I'm going to know his voice, I've got to know him. And I've got to continue to grow in knowing him so that I would be able to know and discern his voice and that then when another voice might be speaking to me, I don't get confused by it. I don't, I don't get confused because that sounds good to me because it's what I want or it sounds wise. But remember in our battleground series, we talked about how there's wisdom that comes from demons. So how do I know? I need to know the voice of the Lord so that it is louder and clearer than any other voice that I might hear. Okay, how do I obey God? I live in the context of a relationship with God by obeying, by following God's direction. All right, let's keep going. Verse four, and command the people. So he said, turn north and command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau who live in Sire and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. So what we're about to see, we're gonna summarize a whole lot of this here because you're gonna see three large chunks. They're gonna travel through those areas that I just told you about. They're gonna go through the land of Esau, right? So that's where they start. So do you remember Esau, right? Jacob and Esau, they were twins. And, and Jacob and Esau, the, the story of the birthright where Esau was the oldest and so he would have had the birthright but Jacob deceived him and tricked him into the, getting the birthright so that Esau could have some soup, right? You, you remember that story? Well, there's been tension between Jacob and Esau, right? So the people that came from Jacob is the people of Israel. The people that come from Esau are later known as the people of Edom or Edomites, right? And so they're going through the land of Esau and God says, hey, they'll be afraid of you. There's still some tension there. There's still some, some, some animosity there. So you're going through, be careful, be aware. There's some fear there. But look what God says to them about this land. Verse five, do not contend with them. Don't battle with them. Don't fight with them. For I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on because I have given Mount Sire to Esau as a possession. So Paul's there. So what we're going to see also through here, it, it big pictures, we're going to see how God, the creator, moves people and puts them in the places where he wants them. The apostle Paul picks up on this in Acts chapter 17 when he's talking to the, to the Athenians and he's at uh, that, that mountain talking to these philosophers and he describes God as the one who sets the boundaries and sets the borders of the people. And what you're going to see is that being played out here as we see different people groups migrating. Now, you'll study this in history. If you're in school, you're going to be studying about these would be some of the ancient Mesopotamian civilizations. Um, These would be some of the people that you're going to learn learn about in history. And you're going to learn about in history how they're just moving from place to place. But what you're hearing now is what's behind all that is the sovereign hand of God moving people where he wants them to be, giving them the land that belongs to God, giving it to the people he wants. 
And you'll see as you go through the Old Testament, God raises up kingdoms and he tears down kingdoms. It's his prerogative to do that. So he might raise up a kingdom and an empire for his purposes and still hold that empire accountable. And later on, they get judged and thrown down and another one rises up. So you're gonna see that. So God has given this region, Mount Sire, to Esau. So he says, I'm not giving it to you, Israel. I've already given it to Esau and God's a, God's a God of his word. So verse six, we go, you shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat. And you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. Makes me think of your goodness is running after, it's running after me, right? God says to the people, I don't want you to, to think that any of this land is gonna be yours. Instead, when you go through their land, I want you to pay them for their goods. I want you to, to buy your food and I want you to buy your water. And you're gonna do that because I've provided for you to do that because I've never let you lack anything. Sometimes the clearest way that God is providing for us is through our work, okay? Sometimes we're waiting on God and we're saying, God, I need you to do something. I need you to do something. I need you to pay this bill. I need you to show up. And, 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 and we're not working, right? Sometimes the way God provides, in fact, probably more often than we like to think, God's providing for us through our jobs, through the work that he gives us. Work is not a bad thing. Work was given to Adam and Eve in the garden before sin entered. They were tasked with, with overseeing the garden, it, it was not a bad thing for them to work. It gave them a purpose and it helped them to play out the image of God on earth as they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, tending to the garden, ruling over the animals. That was them representing God. Work is not bad. What came with the curse was the toil of work. That I'm gonna work hard and the, the amount of work and effort that I put in, it's not gonna match the payoff. I'm gonna spend long hours sacrificing much and the payoff is not gonna match the amount of hours I put in. I'm gonna toil, I'm gonna work, and I'm gonna barely maybe even be able to make ends meet. But sometimes the way God provides is through our jobs, right? We're looking for him, we're going, I don't have it in my budget, God. I don't have this in my budget. And yet God's gonna provide for us. And if we trust him, what we might find is, hey, we look back and we go, did I ever lack anything that I need it? I think more often than not, we're gonna be able to say, I didn't lack anything that I needed. I didn't have everything I wanted. Maybe there were some tough times, but man, listen, if you're in a tough time and you're having to lean on the Lord, you're in a good spot because that's where your intimacy with the Lord's gonna grow faster and deeper than probably any other time in your life. And when you get through it, you're gonna look back and you're gonna say, man, I, you might even find yourself going, I miss the intimacy. I miss the dependence I had on God. You would also be saying, I don't ever wanna go through that again, but I'd miss what I felt there, right? Sometimes God provides for us through our work and we may not be looking for it because God's provision is not meant to be a welfare for lazy people. God's provision is not meant to be a substitute for us working. Now, absolutely, there are times where God just checks show up in the mail or bills get paid or, you know, whatever. You don't know how it happened, but it happened, right? There's absolutely times like that, and we thank God for them. And we even ask him for them, but we don't live based on them. If God has given us work to do, then we work. And that's what he tells the people of Israel. You pay for your goods because I've blessed you these years, and you've lacked nothing. 
So that's the people of Esau. Verse eight, so we went on away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who lived in Sire, away from the Arabah road from Elath and Ezion Geber. And then we turned and we went to the direction of the wilderness of Moab. So now they're going into the next, the next uh, uh, region. Now the next two regions, Moab and Ammon. Okay, so, so Esau was a brother of Jacob, so a relative to the people of Israel. Moab and Ammon both come from Lot. Abraham's nephew, Lot. You might remember there was a little story about Lot when Lot and his family got delivered from the town of Sodom and Gomorrah. The wife did not because she turned back and she turned to a pillar of salt. So it was Lot and his two daughters. And his two daughters had sons from Lot. Moab are the people that came from one of those sons and Ammon are the people that came from the other son. So they're still relatives, but there's a lot of dysfunction here. Okay? All right, so, so we turned and we went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab or contend with them. So no battling him. This is not your fight. For I will not give you of their land for a possession because I've given Ar, which is a city in Moab, to the people of Lot for a possession. So again, God's the God of his word. This land's not yours. This land I've given to the people of Moab. So you don't expect any of it. We'll keep going. There's some side notes here. The Amim formerly lived there, a people great and many, and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Amim. Okay, so here's what you get, and we're going to have this in a moment. We've talked about the Nephilim last week. We talked about how this was from Genesis 6, 1 through 4, sons of God, which were spiritual beings, had a relationship with human women, and they produced Nephilim, which were this crossbreed, if you will, and they were giants, right? Well, you still find these giants in the land after the flood. We talked about that last week. The giants go by different names, depending on what area they're in. So that's what Moses is helping us understand. So the Amim, sometimes the, the giants were called that. We looked last week, we, we saw the sons of Anak were also giants. And then the people of Israel called them Rephaim. So he's just letting us know that there are still giants in these regions or there were giants in some of these regions, but God drove them out as he let the, the people of Moab uh, settle in there. Okay, we're gonna come back to that in a mere minute. The Horites, verse 12, also lived in Sire formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them. See, so this is the people of Esau moving other people out of the land. So you see the sovereign hand of God moving people, driving other people out. In some cases, God was using the people of Esau, the people of Moab, we'll see in a minute, the people of Ammon, to destroy some of these giants because these giants need to be destroyed. All right, so we go on. They, he dispossessed them and they destroyed them from before them and settled in their place. Okay, so I'm gonna jump down to verse 13 now. Now God says, now rise up and go over the brook Zered. So we went over the brook Zered. So this is another boundary. Okay, so they've passed through the land of Moab. God says, I'm gonna prov- um, I've provided for you. You don't get to battle them. And now they're crossing into the next region. Okay, verse 14. And the time from our, uh, from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we cross the brook Zered. So God just told them at this point in Moses' recounting of history, cross the brook. So now Moses says, remember, from the time we were at Kadesh Barnea to the time we crossed the brook Zered, it was 38 years. Okay, Moses has just summed up in his sermon 38 years up to this point, right? Wandering in the wilderness, crossing into these regions. 38 years until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. 
For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. Remember, God said, you're gonna wander in the years of the desert for 40 years, one year for every day the spies were spending in the land. And the spies had come back with these negative reports except for two of them, Joshua and Caleb, right? And so the people did not obey God. They did not go and take possession of the land the first time. And so therefore, God sent them into the wilderness. And he said, you're gonna be there until this entire generation of adults. So basically 20 and up, because if you were 20, you served in the military. 20 and up. That's, when, that's, that's the people that was gonna be wiped out. Anyone who was 20 and up. So they've been wandering while all those people got wiped out. Here they stand now, listening to this sermon of Moses. Just humanize this for a moment. Okay, because just, it's just a blip in the midst of this chapter, but humanize this for a moment. You're part of this new generation. And Moses is telling you, it took us 38 years to get here. And we were wandering around until all the previous generation passed away. You've had a dad or a mom, maybe a grandpa, grandma, who was part of that generation who has died off in the wilderness. And Moses is reminding you it's because of their disobedience that it took us this long to get to this point. You're gonna be mixed with emotion. You're, you're human, after all. You're gonna be feeling the loss. You're, you're gonna be mixed with, well, why did it take us so long? It didn't have to, but because one generation's disobedience affects the next generation. And we talked about that the first week. So, so maybe you're, you're experiencing some of that, and yet, in the midst of all that, you, you can't deny that God has provided for you. You can't deny the things that you've seen as you've wandered in the desert. And so the lesson here before the people is you don't want to continue in disobedience. You're about to receive the very same command that the previous generation was given to go and take possession of the land. You need to remember how you got here because history teaches us. And sometimes it's better that we learn from someone else's experiences so that we don't have to experience as ourselves. Right? There, there are some lessons that we're going to learn the hard way. We're going to have to experience it. But any lessons that we can learn through someone else's experiences, Lord, give those, those lessons to me, please, so that I don't have to go down the road. And every parent likely at some point says that to their kids. I just don't want you to go down the road I went down. I want you to learn this now because when I was your age, I wasn't thinking about this. We want to learn lessons from the previous generation or from other people so that we don't have to go through the same thing. So here they stand. Whole generation wiped out. So verse 16, as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, today you are to cross the border of Moab. Okay, so we, we had to let that all finish. All that generation wiped out. Now they're wiped out. Verse 17, now the Lord says, today, today you start going in to take the land. So he says, go across the border to at Ar, verse 19, when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon. So now we're moving into that third territory toward the top. He says, do not harass them or contend with them for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession because I've given that to the sons of Lot for possession. Now that's three times now that people are passing through a land and God says, I don't, I don't want you to think any of this is gonna be yours. I'm not giving any of it to you. How often do we see what other people have and we think, I want that. 
I covet that, right? And they shouldn't have that. I should have that. After all, they're not part of the people of God. I am. They don't worship God. I do. They shouldn't be experiencing all that goodness. I should be experiencing it. I shouldn't be going through all of this trial. They should be, right? I mean, we we do that and we question the Lord's sovereignty in all this because God, after all, is the one who, who guides and directs all of these things. And so when I look at what someone else has, And I covet that, which is coming later, right? Do not covet is one of the commandments. I covet that. I'm saying, God, I'm not content with what you've given me. I'm not satisfied with where you're leading me. I I think I can choose better for myself. And to be fair, there are times where we just don't understand why. Absolutely, we just don't understand why. But all these three territories, it's not for you. I've given it to these people. Keep going. Verse 20, and we get more giant talk. It's also counted as the land of the Rephaim who live there, but the Ammonites called them by a different name, the Zazumim. So here's the key here. When you see these these people groups, the Zazumim or the Rephaim, which is gonna be more common, or the Anakim or the Amim, they're all the same, they all come from the same bloodline. They're all part of that, that giant group. Verse 21, there are people great and many and tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites. Okay, so they dispossessed them. I'm gonna, I'm gonna summarize some of this, right? And then the people of Ammon live there to this day. Verse 23, as for the Avim, this is another people group. They lived in villages. So God talks about how he settled them there. Verse 24, here's the command. Rise up, set out on your journey and go over the valley of Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land began to take possession and contend with him in battle. There's the command. Hey, today I'm giving you this king. He's going to be delivered over you and all of his land. Now I'm telling you, go and contend, go to battle. And thus begins the holy war of God. And I want to talk about that just for a moment. Because now what you're going to see all throughout the rest of this narrative, and then you'll see it in Joshua, the book of Joshua, is the people of God going in and taking possession of the land. And there's going to be many battles fought. And there's going to be many people killed. And there's going to be some, some, some weird instructions. We're going to cover some of that in here in just a moment. But you need to understand this is holy war. And here's what I mean. It's initiated by God himself. It serves the very purposes of God himself. The people of Israel are not the ones driving these military campaigns. They're not the ones going after the things that they want. They're following the direction of their God, who is also their king. They are a theocracy. They are under the direct rule and reign of God. They have no king at this point. They have no one on the throne. They are the people of God. And so their God, their king, is guiding and directing him. There is no other theocracy. And Israel ultimately uh, uh, sacrificed that, gave it away. There is no other theocracy. There is no other nation in history who is directly ruled and reigned over by God as we see here, which means there is no theocracy here in America, North America. There's been no theocracy in any of the empires that have reigned over the course of history. There have been no other holy wars because every other war ultimately falls at the hands of people. 
There's no other holy war where we see the God of, of all of creation directing and guiding the people. God's goal was not to go in and force conversion on the people. There was judgment included in some of this for the people that have been rejecting him. But he, we never see him going and forcing the people to convert. We never see him trying to set up some kind of caliphate, right? The goal is the kingdom of God over all the earth, but it's good and it's right because God is the creator. But when you've got a false God like Allah, not the same God of the Bible, and people are going in his name and trying to set up a caliphate, that is not holy war. It's holy to them, but it's not holy war in that it comes from God. There has never been another theocracy. Therefore, there's never been any other holy wars. Therefore, the things that we're gonna see here stand alone. This is different. Holy war is different from what we might call just war theory or just war tradition. Okay? That's a whole different ballgame. This is not the same. Just war theory, just war tradition, which is a way that, that people try to um, go into battle with, with some kind of moral compass, that's not holy war. That's just humanity trying to figure out, is this a just cause? It's not holy war. So I want you to hear the distinction. We have God himself guiding and directing his people, fulfilling promises that God alone can make and God alone can keep. So thus begins the holy war. Go in, take possession, and contend with him in battle. So what does all this look like? All that we just summed up. If the people of God are to live in relationship with God and it requires obedience, not only does obedience look like following God's direction, but what we just saw through all of that is obedience trusts God's provision. Don't take this land, I'm giving it to these people. Don't take this land, don't take this land. Now here, I'm giving you this one. Obedience trusts God's provision. It may not look like the way we would have done it, the provision may come in a way that we would not have been looking for or expect, but we can trust God's provision. And obedience is trusting him to provide in the way that he knows is best and in the timing that he knows is best. So obedience trusts God's provision. But we're gonna see one other thing that obedience looks like. Let's take a look. Verse 25. So this day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. I, I really kind of like this, right? Because here you've got God saying, now go up, I'm giving this king into your hand and I'm gonna deliver his land into your hand. And by the way, I'm going ahead of you and all these people are already afraid of you because of me. I think of Joshua, the book of Joshua, and the story of Rahab, the, the, uh, the, the, the woman who hid the spies in Jericho. And she ultimately becomes a believer in God, a worshiper of God. And she tells the spies, I heard about what your God had done, how he brought you out of Egypt, how he delivered you from the Egyptians, how he, he cared for you in the wilderness. I heard about him and I feared. And that's a good and right and healthy type of fear. And that ultimately led her to trust in the Lord as well. I, I, I love this because God's going ahead. I'm going to fight for you. I'm telling you it's yours. I've given them over to you. By the way, they're already going to be afraid of you. It's because of me. Verse 26. So I sent messengers. So I'm going to summarize some of this because what, what Moses does is he sends messengers to King Sihon and he's going to attempt for peace first. Hey, we want to pass through here. We're on our way to the land that God has given us. We want to pass through here and we want to be peaceful about this. We'll buy food from you. We'll buy water from you if you will just let us travel on your roads. So he's attempting to be peaceful. 
And he says, and by the way, verse 29, we've already done this with the people of Esau and the people of Moab. We, we want to do the same thing with you. Okay, that's the peace offering. Verse 30, but Sion, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate so that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And let me pause there for a moment because this, this is history. This is how history works because history is, is, is God's history, right? All of history is God's history. As the creator of all things, all of history is God's history. But what we get a glimpse of here is how the Hebrew people understood history. See, in the moment, see, Moses is retelling this. In the moment, as they were experiencing it, here's what it would have been like. We've offered peace to the king. The king did not accept our peace. He's now coming out to battle against us. He has chosen to come fight against us. That would have been the experience. But history, as, God, as God's people are looking back on it, is this. He didn't accept our peace offering. Why? Because God hardened his heart and his spirit so that he would not accept it so that he could then give this king into our hands. That's the perspective of history. Looking at it from God's perspective. Here's what I experienced, but then as I look back on it, I can see God's hand all over it. And what we find here is a tension that shows up repeatedly in the scriptures. People make meaningful choices. They have a will that they make choices with and they act upon. And yet, God in his sovereignty can accomplish his purposes and the two of those things do not contradict they are held in tension as far as our understanding goes. How can it be that the king makes his own choice to go up against the people and yet we find out God was hardening his heart because the two are compatible. There's no need to resolve the two. It's only in our Western mindset and our logical thinking of either or. It has to be either this or that. But that's new. That is, that is primarily a Western way of thinking. The Eastern way of thinking is not either or, it's both and. They weren't concerned with resolving the things that our Western mindsets are concerned about resolving. They were content with the tension because it wasn't about necessarily trying to, to wrestle down theological doctrine. It was, how do I understand history? Here's what I experienced, but here's what I know God had done. These tensions will always be there. And the moment we try to resolve the tension one way or the other in favor of humanity's will or in favor of God's sovereignty, we're gonna go one extreme or the other and we're gonna abandon what's biblical. There is a tension there. It must stay there. And it's not a balance. It's not 50-50. It's a tension that has to stay there. So that's what their perspective is. So verse 31, and the Lord said to me, behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. There's the command. Go up and take it. I've given him into your hand. Then Sihon came out against us. He battles against us. Verse 33, the Lord our God gave him over to us and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. God's true to his word. When the people of God are obedient to God, God is going to show up and he's going to do what he says they're going to do. Remember, they tried to go to battle before, but the Lord said, I'm not going to be in your midst if you go. But they went anyway and they got beaten like bees. They were chased like bees, but not this time. This time God said, go up, take it. I've given it to you. They do so. He delivers. Just a few more verses. Verse 34, we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children, we left no survivors. That's a big deal. This is a, this is a concept. It's, it's not unique to the Hebrews. It's ancient Near Eastern, but the Hebrews had a very uh, different take on it. It's called harem. Like that. Can you say it? Harem. Okay, just say harem. 
Now put a ch on the front of it. Cherem. There it is. All right. So you'll see it. That was good. That sounds more yeah, like a tiger or something. Right? This is, this is where it's oftentimes going to be de, uh, translated devoted to destruction. And you're going to see everything is devoted to destruction. Men, women, and children. Harem is, is when, you, when, when God designates something that exclusively belongs to him. And he's either designating it for judgment or he's designating it to be set apart for him. And it can go either way. But the point is, it does not belong to the people. And so those things are either set aside and they're holy or they're set aside and they're for judgment according to God's purposes. And everything gets destroyed. Nothing is to be taken. Which, by the way, when you get to Joshua and the story of Ai and Achan, the guy who steals some things, some idols, he violates this principle. He violates, it's not a principle for them, it's actually a law I'm going to show you. He violates it by taking their idols and their, and their money. And so then, not only does Achan get destroyed, but his whole family gets destroyed. This is a hard concept for us because we live in a day and age where we have the Geneva Convention and when our, our military goes to, to battle, we're supposed to follow that. Now in the war on terror, we have not been following that because the enemy doesn't follow that, right? So, so we've tried to follow that, but it's certainly getting more and more away from that. But in general, the Geneva Convention says when you're in war and you take prisoners of war, non-combatants are not, not fair game. So uh, if, they're, if they're a woman and they're not a combatant, that's been kind of what's different in this war on terror is sometimes you've got women who are combatants and it's hard to tell. But that wasn't the case necessarily here. So a woman, non-combatant, children, non-combatant in this, in this society, right? And then, um, and then in our day and age, it's chaplains and medical folks. Unless they take up a weapon, they're considered a non-combatant. They're supposed to be, if everybody follows the rules, right? That's a really high view of humanity. But if everybody follows the rules, they're supposed to be treated with a certain level of respect and dignity. That's not harem. Harem is everybody gets destroyed. Now, God is not a cruel God. God is not a God who supports genocide. Harem, as you see it show up, if you were to go and look this up, in fact, the way you could do it is just search for devoted to destruction in the ESV because that's how it's translated. See where it shows up and see what the context is. What you're going to find is in the majority of the cases where God tells them to devote everything to destruction, it's tied to a city or a region where there were giants, where there were people with this mixed bloodline and God is wiping out this bloodline of the Nephilim that started in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. That's why we're hearing about all these people, the Amim, the Rephaim, the Zamzumzim, whatever it was, right? All these giants, right? These are people who have this mixed bloodline that was where the angels of, uh, the, the, those spiritual beings crossed the line. They transgressed, right? And so God is destroying these people. So those places where those people are there, the entire bloodline has to be destroyed. This is a holy war, that's why I'm telling you there's no other wars like this. There's, there's no other people that can claim this kind of war. This is God, the God of the universe, the God who created all things. He is bringing judgment on both the people who have rejected him, but also the spiritual beings who transgress their location, their boundaries, right? And so the, the result of them, those giants that have this bloodline, they're getting wiped down as well. That's where you'll find Harem showing up. That's where all the things are destroyed because the bloodline has to be wiped out as the kingdom of God is coming upon the earth. So they kept the livestock, that's it. There was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Last thing we're seeing here, obedience, is that the obedience 
of God looks like experiencing the power of God. This is the law. This is a law I wanted to mention to you. Exodus 22, verse 20. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction, harem. All the people that Israel is going up against are worshiping other gods. The people of Israel, when they start worshiping other gods, they also fall under this law. But in obedience, the people of God, in obedience, they experience God's power. So we're gonna experience, uh, we're gonna obedience, uh, follows God's direction, obedience, trusts God's provision, obedience experiences God's power. When we're obedient to God, we experience the power of God as he acts on our behalf, as he paves the way. So real quick, as we wrap this up, some some thoughts for us here as we try to apply this to our life. So um, obedience is not a bad word. So if I'm talking to people who come under the covenant of God, the new covenant, you've trusted in Christ, you're part of the new covenant of God, obedience is done out of love. If we don't, we don't obey in order to be accepted or brought into the covenant, we obey because we have been brought into the covenant. And the Spirit of God produces that desire in us to obey, and the Spirit of God gives us the ability to obey. That's Philippians 2, 12 and, uh, or 13 and 14, or 12 and 13, right? But if I'm talking to somebody who is not under the covenant, you've not trusted in Christ yet, what does it look like for obedience? Well, this is John three thirty six from the Gospel of John. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you see what John, John just did there? Believing in the Son results in eternal life. The opposite of believing in the Son, John says, is to not obey the Son. So if I believe in Christ, I'm obeying God. And I obey unto salvation. Not that I work my way and earn salvation, but what, what John is doing there is he's saying that that faith that I responded to the gospel, that's an, that's an obedient act. But I didn't produce that act. The Spirit of God produces that in me. But if I refuse to respond to the gospel by faith, John says you're being disobedient to God. Same thing here in Acts chapter five, verse 32. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God gives to those who obey him. Well, who gets the Holy Spirit? Those who are in Christ. How do you, how do you become in Christ? You believe in him. You respond to the gospel by faith. But what, is, what does Luke do here? He says you obey him. Well, Luke's not changing his theology all of a sudden saying the way you live determines whether or not you get brought into the family of God. The way you live is how you receive the spirit of God. Now, there's something to be said for as a believer in Christ, if you're walking in obedience, you're gonna experience more of that power. But what Luke is talking about here is the spirit of God coming upon a person, initially bringing them into the family of God. And he says the way we get that is by obeying. And that means believing. So how do I obey God? Well, as a believer in Christ, I walk according to the standards of Christ. But if you've not trusted in Christ, the way you obey God is you respond to the gospel by faith. You respond to what he's done in Christ when he sent Christ to die for sinful people and he, he became sin for us so that we would then become the righteousness of God. Then he rose from the dead to a new type of life, overcoming sin and death. He doesn't expect us to live a perfect life of obedience and then earn it. He expects us to trust in the perfect life of obedience that he himself has already lived on our behalf and then receive it receive the righteousness of Christ. That's what it would look like for obeying God this morning if you've not come under that, that covenant yet. Obedience is how the people of God live in relationship with God. So I think as we wrap this up, the, the question we put before us is, God, we wanna be a people who obey. 
So help us to know how you're leading us so that we can follow your direction. We're asking you to provide for us in certain situations. Help us to see that and know it and recognize it. And then God, we wanna see your power. As, as we live out our lives, we wanna see your power as your kingdom continues to come here on earth as it is in heaven. And for some of you this morning, the responding is, God, I wanna obey by trusting in Christ this morning. None of this obedience, none of this obedience earns us any more of God's love. When we are in Christ, his love for us is unchanging. It can never grow, it can never diminish. We don't obey to change God's love for us. We obey because of God's love for us. So Father, let that fall on us this morning. Let your spirit come behind and take all the story that Paul tells us that these things in the Old Testament, they were written for our instruction. The things that these people that we just read about, went, they went through it as an example for us so that we also might not fall into disobedience. So God, show us what does it look like to obey you today? How are you guiding us and leading and directing us? Help us to know your voice. What does it look like to trust you for your provision? How are you providing for us? Even if that's through our work, God, we're, we're grateful for the work. And God, we wanna experience your power in our lives as we see the kingdom come more and more here on earth as it is in heaven. God, we wanna see people's eyes open, people's hearts change. God, we wanna see sick people healed. Um, Matthew chapter 10, verse eight, you, you tell your, your followers to go and heal the sick and to raise the dead and, and, and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. God, we wanna see those kinds of things for your glory, for your kingdom. So then God, make us a people who are obedient because we understand your love for us. Before we wrap up and I dismiss, we're gonna dismiss here in just a moment, but um, we're doing things a little differently with this series, but I want you to know there's always gonna be people available to pray with you after the service. So if you're part of our prayer team, if you go ahead and just make your way uh, to some place in the room or if some of you wanna go to this room outside, 117, just so you know there's people available to pray for you, whatever it is. It may have nothing to do with anything we talked about today, but just want you to know they'll be available. So if you're part of the prayer team, you can go ahead and do that now. You can go ahead and make your way there. And so God, as we depart from here, help us to be a people who know your voice, who hear your voice, and who follow your voice. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. See you guys next week.